Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction, television discussions, and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 20 for August of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be starting our discussion of sci-fi royalty, beginning with the men this month. Ladies will be our topic in September, and our show topics include Midnight Texas, a new supernatural series on NBC, and Salvation, a thriller which just began its run on CBS. Yeah, that last one is nominally science fiction, but coming from some familiar executive producers for us, so we definitely wanted to talk about that. And then we have our interview segment very, very excited to share with you our interview with Michelle Lavretta, who is the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of Killjoys, which Dave reviews on Den of Geek. And it's been getting pretty good reviews there, Dave. <laughs> yeah, it's a great show. It really is. I mean, the whole Sci-Fi Friday, yeah, top notch. Exactly. Now, before we get into the time codes for today's topics, I do want to mention that we will have mild spoilers for Salvation and Midnight Texas for the episodes that have already aired, but we are trying to keep it somewhat of a teaser. So if you're interested in it, you might want to skip around a little bit and see if you're interested in these two shows since they're not from the regular uh, networks that we're used to talking about. So if you need to skip certain topics to avoid spoilers, here are the time codes for today's topics. Sci-Fi Royalty 204 Midnight Texas 1228 Salvation 2658 Killjoy's Interview 4620 All right, and our spoiler-free discussion, of course, our discussion topic, we're going to be discussing sci-fi royalty. This has been a topic that's been in our discussions off the air, Dave, for, gosh, a number of years, I think, and it's exciting that we're going to get to talk about are elite men and women of sci-fi or genre television in general the next couple of months. Yeah, Wayne and I have been arguing about the first lady of sci-fi for quite a while now, at least, like you said, four years or so. Yeah, but this is interesting. I think this is the first time we've decided who should be the sci-fi royalty for the guys. And first, I guess we need to define what do we mean by sci-fi royalty? And it's basically an actor who's got one of two criteria. Either they are iconic in their role, their single role or multiple roles in science fiction, such that they've almost become an archetype for future shows to imitate, or they've just had such a breadth of genre fare that they've acted in that they've become sort of a mainstay for sci-fi and fantasy and supernatural shows. Yeah, and I think we've got some great choices here. I mean, as always, you guys out there probably have your own choices and hey we'd love to hear what they are all right well let me go ahead and start this one out and 
I think some people might say this is cheating almost, but I would argue, are you kidding me? And that is, of course, William Shatner as Captain James T. Kirk in Star Trek, the original series. I, I mean, I really feel as if his character sets the path for every other starship captain after him. Yeah, didn't you and uh, Wayne have on your Sci-Fi TV Rewatch podcast a discussion of, you know, if you had to put together a ship's crew, who would you pick? We did. We had a little draft, actually. And captains, you know, you're right. They kind of emulate the original Captain James D. Kirk. Yeah, and I, if you're going to throw iconic status around, I don't think there's really any question out there. And, and of course, you know, now we have where they've chosen younger actors to play these parts. So Captain James T. Kirk is still alive in the newer uh, versions of the movies. Exactly. So that's direct imitation. But even, you know, a lot of the Starship captains from space dramas like Dark Matter Killjoys and some of the ones we've discussed on this show follow that pattern. And the one I'd like to go into first also comes from Star Trek, and that is Leonard Nimoy as Spock has achieved that iconic royalty status for someone who is on the ship to reflect upon humanity and all its foibles. And sometimes that takes the form of an Android as it does on dark matter. And as, as it did in star Trek, the next generation where data filled the same role as the Vulcan, the emotionless Vulcan who basically points out how emotions can cloud the, the judgment of humanity. But at the same time, humanity is wonderful because of their, you know, violence and love and everything in between. And there are a lot of people that aren't even sci-fi fans that if you ask them, do you know Mr. Spock, they would answer yes. And almost the same way Darth Vader has become so iconic in, in our culture. And I, I think even more to the point with Spock, I think he's probably even a bit more iconic than Captain Kirk, because I, I would suspect there's probably some of these same non-fans that might not know Kirk, but they probably know Spock. Right. And so they've achieved iconic status. And the other criteria we have for sci-fi royalty is breadth of sci-fi career. And of course, Leonard Nimoy was in Fringe as well. So we can't forget that. Absolutely. All right. Well, my second actor is David Duchovny, who played Fox Mulder in Fox's The X-Files. And I really think The X-Files was a show that brought sci-fi on television back to the forefront where we all feel that it belongs. And his character is just the quintessential believer. He's not stupid. He's not naive. He, he certainly got a science background, uh, certainly not as much as Scully, his, his partner. But I think his character is so forceful. The series lasted nine seasons. He was a part of eight plus sort of. But certainly his character, I think, definitely qualifies as being iconic. Right. The pair of them, uh, Mulder and Scully, have become archetypes themselves, the believer and the skeptic, that we've seen that many times since. So, But because this is male royalty, David Duchovny gets that one. Well, there was one that was even before that, and <laughs> I think you could make a number of choices here for Doctor Who, which obviously has been around, gosh, since 1963, I believe. And I had to choose as my iconic sci-fi royalty member, Tom Baker, the fourth doctor, 
not only because he was on it for seven years, which is longer than any other doctor, 1974 to 1981 was his run, but just because I believe some of the eccentricities he brought to the role have been imitated by future doctors, not the least of which is the scarf and just the mannerisms that were a little bit more mad scientist type thing that the previous doctors before him didn't really enact. Right. And you could even argue that Matt Smith, some of the things that he used to play his doctor almost paid a little bit of homage to Tom Baker. And and as you said, he was the doctor for seven years and everybody talks about my doctor and, and truth be told, my doctor is still probably tenant, even though for my age group growing up, Tom Baker was the doctor that I first became acquainted with and, and really was the only doctor because it just seemed as if those seasons were always running on the PBS channels in our yeah, area. Exactly. And while I never necessarily sat down and really got into the show, I saw it often enough that I could make that connection with Tom Baker. And, and as you said, the fact that he was the doctor for seven years, look, the current doctors, nobody's lasted more than three Exactly. So seven years is quite a bit more than anyone else. But uh, so those are our iconic royalty members, the the kings, let's say. Let's, let's go for breadth also in our sci-fi royalty. Who do you think has really had a large scale contribution to genre television? Well, you know, it's really difficult to find that actor that really has done a lot. And, and I think the two that we're going to talk about really epitomize, and I think every serious sci-fi fan knows them. Maybe doesn't know the actor's name, but if you showed them a picture, oh, yeah, exactly. I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go with Tamo Pennicut, who Battlestar Galactic fans know as Hilo, who was certainly one of the major, I'll almost call them second-tier characters, which that is no slight on his character or his acting, but I mean, certainly not up there with Edward James almost. And well, if that was his only role, I might question it, <laughs> but it's big enough. Right. But he was also detective Paul Ballard in dollhouse major character in that show. We know him as Jim Martin in continuum. And while he probably only appeared in about six or eight episodes, his arc was certainly important to the show at that point, And the episodes he was in, he was in. Mm-hmm. He's also been in Supernatural. And then a, a show that I took a look at a couple of the episodes. It's called Rift World Chronicles, and it's short form. And uh, We talked about that a few months ago on, on Sci-Fi Fidelity. He plays a dimension-traveling wizard who's stuck in our world without his magic powers. And he <laughs> teams up with this struggling journalist. It was really cool. I mean, it was slightly campy. But not really. And he was just great in it. I, I really like that. He, he's an Altered Carbon, which is a 2018 Netflix series. That's just the, the little description I did run across. Consciousness is digitized and downloadable. Oh, so this is to come. This is to come. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. So I, I think those really qualify him for inclusion on this list. Oh, yeah. He's definitely got the breadth. And the person we started talking about that way the most, the earliest in our podcasting career, has to be my last choice for sci-fi royalty, which is Roger Cross, who 
I think currently is known to sci-fi fans as six on dark matter, but gosh, he's been everywhere, including continuum with Tom O'Pennicott and <laughs> one of our shows that we started out with, of course, too. But you know, even during continuum, he was on arrow and he's, his career began on 24, which wasn't really a genre show, but people know him from that. And then he was on the returned and the strain, which both have the supernatural element to it as well. So he's pretty much hit every <laughs> note in the spectrum of genre television. Yeah. And I was always singing his praises as, well, he should be the next doctor, but he's not British. Well, he's <laughs> born in Jamaica, I think. Isn't that a colony of Britain or whatever? But uh, no such luck anyway, but we, we love Roger Cross. No question. Yeah. So we'll get to the ladies next month. Uh, there's definitely a lot to talk about there. I think it might even be more controversial since we've talked about it for longer but we'd love to hear your thoughts on who you should be sci-fi royalty for the men and the women. So hit us up on social media if you have some choices to share with us for the men or the women, and we'll share them on the next podcast. But let's go ahead and get into our first show topic of the night, which is Midnight Texas. And boy, has this one been taking off on the live tweet. Midnight Texas has really resonated with fans of shows like Supernatural. We've mentioned that Tom O'Pennicott was on, and it really has that flavor to it. And we've seen two episodes so far, and it really has been something that I've enjoyed seeing the characters laid out, and the exposition has been really fun. Right. Now, it premiered on July 24th, and look, Michael, we have to be careful because it's on NBC. Why? Why is that? <laughs> well, they just don't seem to, I mean, they're the contemporary Fox. Is that fair? Oh, you mean you worry about them lasting? I do. Oh, I mean, we did talk about Emerald City on this podcast, and that unfortunately did not last. So, yeah, I kind of see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still a little bruised from Revolution. So, <laughs> you know, there is that. But it's based on a book series called Midnight, Texas. And Midnight is the town. We're not talking about the time of day, although that certainly comes into play. And it was written by Charlene Harris also wrote the novels that inspired True Blood. So Okay, yeah, it does have that flavor as well. It's kind of supernatural meets True Blood in a way. Right. It's executive produced by Monica Owusu Breen, who we know from Agents of Shield, and David Janelari, who I know from Six Feet Under. I don't know if you watch that show or not. I don't recognize his name, but yeah, when I saw Monica Owusu Breen was attached to it, I'm like, "Oh yeah, we have to Make sure we pronounce her name correctly each time we do one of her episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on our other podcast. Right. Now, you started off with a supernatural description, and, and I found it really creepy, kind of scary. It's got a kind of preacher vibe to it, almost like being human meets outcast. Oh, that's a good one, too. Good combo. I like it. And for me, you know, people ask me, well, why don't why didn't you like Daredevil? And I just didn't connect with the characters. Yeah, it, that's what it boils down to. Do you have a good cast of characters? And these guys are very interesting. They are. And, and so the characters are interesting. But I also have to connect with the actors, which for both episodes, I, I, I was into it. I, I like this. Now, I think the, the issue comes down to the fact that it's like a lot of other shows that are out there yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like Preacher. It's sort of like Outcast. It's sort of like Supernatural. And for guys like the two of us, where we're more science fiction based, not that we don't like this sort of thing, because we do and we, we have some of these shows, but it's not for everybody, you know, and, and it 
probably will come down to a time problem more than anything. Time problem. What do you mean? In other words, having enough time to get it into your watching schedule. Yeah, exactly. I do think it's worth checking out. I go with the rule that I mentioned in our last podcast, which is you got to give a show three episodes to see if you like it. And I think this one is worth at least checking out the first three episodes and see what you think, because there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of scariness, like you said, creepiness. And there's a lot of character development that really seems like it's going to go somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And don't get me wrong. I liked it. I really think it's a good show so far. And, and you know, as you said, the rule of three is something that I think is worth considering anytime there's a new show. Well, I, but- I'm always wary of like, we've got this premise where the main character Manfred is a psychic who can actually communicate with the dead. And that particular premise sometimes puts me off a little bit because we do see a lot of that in specialty procedurals sometimes. And so that trope has been seen many times, but I think they did a very good job of it here. Yeah, I believe Eliza Dushku was in a show and and the name of it is True Calling. Yeah, But he talks to his dead grandmother as he's driving to Midnight, Texas. And that's where we're first introduced to this ability. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of creepy. It's kind of weird, but it, as you said, there's some humor in the show and he carries on these conversations, but we learn early on that he's trying to outrun somebody that it seems as if he owes money to, or, or for some reason they're after him. But we do learn that it might actually be his grandmother who pissed off these people that he's running from, which I, I think kind of adds to the the humor of the of the situation. Oh, definitely. He inherited his abilities from her, and now she's kind of a sidekick or guardian, as it were, that accompanies him on these trips and his only companion, really, when he enters Midnight, Texas. Right. Now, one of the questions for me that I'm still wrestling with is whether or not this ability is unwanted for him. You know, in other words, is it something that he can't help that he, if it was up to him, he would not be able to do it. And it hasn't been answered yet, which is fine. We talk a lot about reluctant heroes. And I think that helps his character play into that very enjoyable archetype that we've seen in other shows as well. Okay. So, you know, one of the things we see in the first couple episodes is that the dead are drawn to him for help. So so that seems to be his MO at this point. He rents a house in midnight, meets his neighbors, called appropriately the Midnighters. And one of the waitresses immediately tells him, uh, you're running from something. And then somebody, of course, wow, he'll fit in just fine. Yes, you get the sense that Midnight Texas is a place for outcasts. Yeah, and I love his line, usually I'm the freak in the room. <laughs> And certainly we learn about the different freaks in Midnight. And I love the the fact that some that we thought were freaks aren't. They're just human. They just are in this little group. And well, some that we thought were normal also turn out to be freaks as well, like the Rev. Exactly. And then it seems his ancestors, you mentioned that he inherited his powers it takes his great-grandmother's skull to slay that last powerful demon in his house. I, I love that touch. Yeah, exactly. It's It definitely was something that was a one-use-only type of thing while he gets his bearings in this really powerful version of stuff he's seen before, but not to this degree. 
Right. Now, are there tropes employed in this series? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is it okay? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and the fact that the town sits on a powerful mystical energy a veil between the living and the dead, which is very thin in midnight. Hellmouth, anybody? <laughs> sure. Or, you know, or even sanctuary. Wasn't that, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, some of these creatures were coming through the tears and the, you know, time space continuum. Okay, fine. That's cool. Look, we've already taken that leap. So we're cool. <laughs> so we're introduced to the different characters. And like, you said at the beginning, we're going to try to keep it relatively spoiler-free, but we're introduced to Lemuel, who is a vampire played by Peter Mensa, who you may know from Sleepy Hollow. He was also in True Blood and Spartacus. Yeah, he's probably my favorite so far, I think. Uh, Fiji, who is the witch. She's a witch or maybe a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who says that. but uh... And then we've got Olivia, who's human but open-minded, but she's in charge of weapons. She's an assassin by trade and she's basically the cleaner. I'm kind of wondering if she's got some other hidden tricks up her sleeve. Well, she doesn't have much of a sleeve. <laughs> she's... No, she doesn't. <laughs> but still she's, you said she's uh human, but open-minded, but maybe she's got a little bit of mysticism in there as well. I'm not sure yet. Right now we've got tattoo parlor, Joe played by Jason Lewis, who's an angel. The Rev, who you mentioned, who is, I mean, he's really not a werewolf, is he? I mean, he's a were creature. <laughs> he's a were, well, he turns into a tiger. Yeah. Well, this has been explored a lot in novels that are very similar to Charlene Harris's. The idea of were creatures that aren't just wolves, but a whole menagerie of creatures that can transform from humans. Right. But we get the whole once a month at the full moon. He's obsessed with his pet cemetery, which we don't really know what that's about yet. I got the sense that that pet cemetery was just the food that he was eating in order to oh, prevent okay. himself from eating humans. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Now, my favorite character, I think at this point, is Creek, who is a human. She's an aspiring writer, but she establishes this connection with Manny early on and is there a little bit of sparkage between the two yes of course but <laughs> you know again it's got a light touch which is fine you know i mean a show like van helsing which i also review for den of geek there's no light touch there and that's fine yeah you have to establish it up front that this is the kind of show you're watching and there's going to be plenty of people who say oh i like this kind of show and now there's a new one there hasn't been one like this in a while so it's definitely got its audience. Yep. Orphan Black fans will recognize Dylan Bruce, who plays Bobo. No, not the one from Winona Earp, but... <laughs> exactly. And it's Bobo's girlfriend, Aubrey, who really gets the ball rolling in episode one because she turns up dead. And this story starts to take a little bit of a procedural bent as they try to figure out who killed Aubrey. And the town's all out at a picnic. I, th I think there's only like probably a couple hundred people in the town. And it appears that Manny's ability to talk to the dead is going to enable him to find out exactly what happened. And of course, Bobo is arrested for her murder. But I love the fact that the sheriff does not discount his abilities. No, not at all. I mean, I think there's a little bit of undercurrent of oh, this local motorcycle gang, which you can tell is going to be at the heart of some type of conspiracy. 
is responsible for this, but there seems to even be some supernatural ties there as well. So yeah, I think people are used to the strangeness of midnight, even the folks that are in the next town over. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned that it sits on this pocket where the barrier between dimensions is pretty thin. And in fact, there appears to be a tear that's allowing evil to escape from below. And so it's going to be up to our heroes to contain that evil. And well, that's what's cool is that he's using his abilities as he's known to do it outside of Midnight, Texas. But it opens up a whole can of worms when he tries it here, including letting in some really nasty stuff that he's not used to seeing. Right. Now, I won't go into any detail here, but Fiji perhaps performs the greatest feat I've ever seen (laughs) on one of these kinds of shows. And, you know, maybe you'll see it and you'll say, ah, come on, it wasn't that great. Now, it was pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just going to leave it at that because stage one, okay, we've seen stage one. But then when she was done, what happens to the police car? Oh, yeah. It snaps back. Into yeah, play. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> um, all right. So I mentioned the sheriff in the neighboring town. And, you know, he's not a midnighter, but but he seems to have a certain respect for what's going on in this town. And that's one of those tropes that I'm glad they did not use because ordinarily that neighboring town sheriff would be all over trying to crush anybody for midnight but yet here he realizes that no i need their help they can help me why would i not accept their help exactly he's not playing the skeptic like you would see in other shows yeah so you know some of the early thematic ideas revolve around reconciling both sides of this dual nature that that many of them struggle with especially the non-humans and trying to find some meaning in that duality i mean the rev kills a deputy now he's got to live with that and you know if the sheriff learns that his tiger killed her will he prosecute you know there are all sorts of like these ethical questions that are are left kind of hanging after uh two episodes should we talk about the big reveal about our last point okay yeah we'll just warn you if if you haven't seen it and you we've teased you go see it first because now we're going to share something that we really enjoyed about it <laughs> spoiler yeah, because we get this big reveal, and this may in fact be the central thread of the show. I mean, we don't know two episodes in, but Joe, who's also a painter, has painted this picture that depicts the coming apocalypse, and he tells his partner that he was here a millennium ago. This is the angel, by the way. <laughs> right. When last there was a tear like this, and that prophecy says that a man with visions will lead them. Is that Manny? Exactly. So that's going to be the mythological undercurrent, especially because Joe is this angel and has been around a long time. He may know a lot more than the others. And speaking of which, I have to applaud this show for having Joe and his boyfriend be not your stereotypical gay characters. I mean, they're very masculine and it's very understated. And I think that was very well done. And so, you know, people have sometimes started to like seeing relationships of all types in their science fiction and genre television. So you've got one right here and a good one. All right. Well, why don't we move on to our second show, which is salvation. Yeah. And the reason we chose this, this was not even on our radar until I got an email from executive producer, Craig Shapiro to say, Hey, do you guys want to talk about this on your podcast? (laughs) And I said, Oh, 
Salvation. And I had to check it out and really was excited by the premise of it. And the reason, by the way, he was contacting us is because Dave and I used to do a podcast for Extant, which Craig Shapiro and his wife, Liz Kruger, also executive produced. And did you get the sense when you were watching this show on CBS, which was also the network that aired Extant, that it had some of the same flavor of it, almost as though you could tell it had the Shapiro Kruger stamp on it? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of how they're presenting it to the public, it is once again, just like Extant, a CBS summer event series of 13 episodes. This one airs Wednesdays at nine o'clock Eastern time. And yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think when we've talked about this before, I think I liked Extant a little better than you did. Yeah. And, and a little bit better for both of us than maybe the general public did. But this one, I think people will be very pleased by just from the strength of the writing. I was very, very impressed with how the storytelling unfolded. It's not strictly speaking science fiction. Stop. What? I knew you were going to I was just, okay, l- l- let me just establish right now. I think that's where you and I disagree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Keep going. Well, because <laughs> the asteroid element is from space. So there's an asteroid headed for Earth on a collision course that's rated at an extinction level event. Okay. We've seen that before in movies and on television, but with television, it's a little bit tricky because here you've got 180 days until the asteroid hits the earth. And so are you going to draw those 180 days out over the course of the series? Of course not. So something's got to happen in this first season or maybe the second season, if there is one to shift gears a little bit, but that premise really puts everyone on the edge of their seats at the beginning, which, gosh, certainly can't be a bad thing. (laughs) Right. And I guess what I would argue, the fact that there's an asteroid on a collision course with Earth, I mean, that's the impetus. So that the true science fiction for me is what comes out of that. And it's not so much what their plan is, but when they start talking about alternate scenarios, like putting together Noah's Ark, if you will. And having to come up with moral and ethical decisions based around that and, and you know, among other things, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the in the course of this discussion. But for me, that's, I guess, why I really see more in this show than I first did when I first watched it. And of course, we did talk about Mars on Nat Geo on this podcast, which followed Elon Musk's desire to have people on Mars so that you don't have all your eggs in one basket in case something like this happens. And that's exactly the character that we're introduced to in this show. We have that tech genius, that Steve Jobs-like character that drives a lot of the technology solutions that they come up with to try and avoid this asteroid. So what we have is we've got this MIT grad student, really love these characters, by the way, whose pet project is to map the solar system of all the different objects that are floating around out there. And in the process of doing that, he detects that there is an asteroid headed towards earth. So the only person he can think to talk to about it is his professor. But then there seems to be something going on there where the government actually is trying to keep things under wraps. And so if you go instead to someone who is a civilian and that's this Elon Musk like character, then action starts to take place, not because of the government who wants to keep things under wraps to prevent a panic, But when you got someone who has this desire to get humans to Mars and other projects like that, 
they're going to start making things happen. And I just really love that setup that you've got the government conspiracy paired up with these two geniuses who are trying to come up with real solutions, but even they have somewhat of a dark side, or at least the tech genius does a little bit. Well, the other thing I like is is the fact that the private sector comes into direct collision with the federal government over how we're going to save the human race. And, you know, this is not how we're going to save the tax code, how we're going to solve (laughs) the immigration problem, you know, and that while both are working essentially in secret to each other, I mean, to me, that's fascinating. And to me, you could certainly see that the human race becomes extinct because of bureaucratic red tape. Exactly right. And that's something that plays out very quickly. And I appreciate the fact that they bring this up as they start adding people to the security clearance to know about this. And as a result of that, of course, the audience gets to see what's really going on behind the scenes that the government has known for a few months now that this asteroid is headed towards Earth. But uh, Darius Tans is the tech genius guy. He offers to help. He hooks up with this grad student to undertake this plan that will launch this, well, supposedly launch this Noah's Ark into space for 160 individuals, which apparently is the minimum number necessary to keep the human race alive. But at the same time, plans are being hatched and failing because of the rushed time schedule. And of course, this does make things very tense for these first few episodes. We've had four of them air so far, and it's given us enough time to, like you said, explore those moral and ethical issues surrounding an event of this magnitude. Because, you know, do we watch out for our own self-interests if we redirect the asteroid towards other countries on the planet that might suffer from some fragments falling down on them? Should we plan for total annihilation of the entire planet and get these individuals off Earth? And who's going to make those choices? Yeah, and we find out right away that choices are made in the first two episodes. So, again, I like the fact that they're not dragging some of these things out and that certainly there are motions in play for basically all of the above. Exactly. And they they have to try everything. But, you know, the scientists, which are Darius Tans and Liam, his graduate student helper, are really kind of shooting down some of the government ideas and coming up with some of their own solutions. And it's a very creative way that that unfolds. One little trope that's on the side, which I've really actually come to enjoy, even though I don't like really where it's headed and I hope it doesn't follow predictable pathways, is the reporter who's trying to uncover what's going on. I think the first thing she latches onto is the fact that nuclear weapons are being moved to Florida to be decommissioned instead of, I think, Utah or someplace where they would normally be dealt with. And this raises a lot of red flags with the journalists. Why are these things being moved? And of course, they're being moved so that they can attempt to shoot the asteroid out of the sky if need be. But it takes her down this very interesting path. And it's a very young reporter from a fictional newspaper called Capital Eyes. And it reminds me a little bit of Zoe from House of Cards. And that was a great character on that show. So I'm hoping that, you know, the similar things are not in store for this character. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, the other thing that comes up in terms of moral and ethical 
decisions is that apparently the government is having people killed yeah. that are getting too close to the truth. And that's also something that's caught her attention. And as you said, I mean, it is a trope, but but they handle it well. I mean, her character, I think, is is really compelling. Is she duped by Darius Tans? Well, that remains to be seen. You know, obviously, that's his intention when he brings her in for a one-on-one interview, but... Oh, yeah, exactly. We don't know yet. Try and deflect attention. But the thing that I really like the dynamic of is the press secretary for the Department of of Defense, whose name is Grace, having this secret affair with the, what is he, the assistant director or assistant secretary of defense or something like that. Yeah. And they immediately, well, she gets brought in on the security clearance so she can know about it. And immediately there's this distrust between the two of them. First of all, their relationship being secret already makes it feel that way. But then she's got to do some maneuverings to help Tans that are against what the bureaucracy would want. She has to make things happen. And this mistrust that's being sown between them is very, very compelling. And I loved watching that unfold, especially since she does seem to be very savvy, not only in deflecting the suspicions of the government employees that are trying to prevent her from, for example, checking out some nuclear material <laughs> so that tans can use it what the hell's up with that come on i mean can't you just go down and check out a couple canisters of plutonium oh, how hard is it but she's also pretty good at deflecting the attentions of this journalist and of course i guess that's part of her job as press secretary she seems to really have a cool head when it comes to deflecting hard-hitting questions all right now you you claim it's not so sci-fi and all i have two words for you michael what tractor beam <laughs> Yeah, that was a bit far-fetched, but I, I liked it. Like you said, that is definitely science fi- in the realm of science fiction, as is the EM drive. But you know what? It really has the flavor of reality, and I'm sure it's based on real science that they're coming up with because it definitely has that flavor. But this EM drive, even though it's kind of kitschy with the trying to find the frequency and then telling the computer to eliminate, <laughs> you know, the least likely algorithms to speed up the process. That was a little bit, you know, far-fetched, but the EM drive in general, just seems like a really cool idea to get this ship out there quickly to try and deflect it with a tractor beam. (laughs) Even as I say it, it sounds very science fiction. Well, right. And all of that, I know what you're saying and I agree, but I was okay with that. If I had to nitpick the, the one thing that bothered me it was that it was a little bit too easy to get that plutonium <laughs> yeah well it was fun it was fun it was still fun a- absolutely well the only thing that bothered me actually was the girlfriend this girlfriend that liam has it's a problem for tans he thinks that she needs to be kept close so that liam can be kept close because he know he's got a kid genius on his hands with this mit grad student but i don't get it why did they have to have this girlfriend be someone that Liam just met right when he discovered the asteroid instead of some girlfriend that he's had for a while. I mean, it just seems really over the top to have them so in love with each other or infatuated with each other where it becomes a problem. I mean, it's, she's a fun character. She's a science fiction writer, which gosh, that's fun. And having him show up to her book signing that's under attended and yes. he just hires a bunch of people to <laughs> using Tans's money to go to her book signing. I mean, it's all a really cool unfolding relationship, but it just seems 
a little bit stretched. Well, well, there are two things though, and and I know what you're saying, and I thought the same thing. But but two things. One, I believe it's Tans recognizes her name and recognizes. I think I believe it was her grandfather. Oh, really? Who had some sort of a science connection? So wondering if that's going to play out. But then once he brings her on board. He's assigned her the task of putting together a list of who the 160 would be. Oh, right. So on the one hand, yes. I mean, he doesn't want Liam to become distracted. And I love, I I forget who he says it to earlier on when, you know, you brought this kid on board. It's like this kid was having sex with a girl and he found out about the asteroid, you know, (laughs) on the night he was getting right, right. Exactly. Something like that. So. So, yeah, I think there's something more to her character that I think we're just going to have to wait to see what's revealed about that. But but I like it so far. Yeah, it's like I like the characters, and that's really the core of enjoyment for any show, as we mentioned with Midnight Texas as well. The other thing that obviously is being laid out there for us to chew on is this Project Atlas, which was really interesting. I mean, as much suspicion as was laid between Grace and Harris, the Department of Defense Assistant Secretary, as soon as she mentions Project Atlas, it becomes a really you know, scary thing where he doesn't even want her to mention those words. So I think that might have something to do with maybe a, a section of the government who's trying to eliminate people who know about it or something like that, because clearly there's the agenda of the people who are trying to prevent the asteroid from devastating Earth. And then there's Project Atlas, which is something completely separate. And even the reporter gets her hands on that one. Right. And, you know, before you know it, you don't know who to trust. The characters don't know who to trust. And it seems to kind of be the primary focus as we move forward in the show, which, again, is fun. You you know, people often act at cross purposes. So it'll certainly be interesting to see how it plays out. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. And and that's what's really been woven very well. You, you know what it strangely reminds me of? And maybe it's just because it's on CBS. And I don't think you watch this show, Dave, but this show really plays out like Madam Secretary, which is a show that has achieved great success on CBS. And the political structure that they have in that show seems very similar to the way that Grace and Harris interact on this show with their government companions. So I just think the writing, the level of writing is just top notch with that as well. And in fact, do you almost get the sense that the actress playing Grace has a bit of a Gillian Anderson vibe going on? Oh, sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No question. Yeah. So I think that that contributes to my enjoyment as well. So some interesting little bits and pieces that are really drawing me in. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, one of the ones that that's really drawing me in is this whole idea of the impactor plan, which is the the plan that the government's pushing where they're going to try to redirect the IO probe which is out at Jupiter and use that to basically bump into the asteroid, but it will break it into smaller pieces which you mentioned at the top of the discussion. It'll remove the extinction level event, but Russia, China, and Mongolia will be wiped out, not hurt, wiped out. Right. Millions of people will die, and it becomes a matter matter of national interest, and it can't be ignored. You can see it on their faces. This is a terrible thing, but, you know, with something like this, if any humans should 
survive, it might as well be the United States of America. <laughs> I, th- I think they say 1.5 billion oh, will, billion. will okay. die. Yep. Wow. But the other point that they throw at us is that there are two windows of opportunity to do this. And the first is only seven days away. The second is in 60. So, of course, you might say, well, you wait and prepare better. But the problem is, if you don't meet that second window, that's it. You got no other options. So the government's pushing for this seven day event, which is absurd, you know, given the technology that's required. But they give Tan six days to produce a proof of concept that his idea can be successful. Right. And of course, they do do it. They are able to get the professor of Liam's on board. He went missing for a little while it almost became a victim himself and then the two of them work out a solution to perhaps address the 60-day window if they just get enough time to design the em drive a little bit and it fails the prototype fails which obviously puts tans in a difficult position but it almost becomes a point where is tans doing this for his own self-interest his own success to a certain degree because sometimes he seems altruistic and sometimes he doesn't especially at the end when the government decides to go with the io probe with the seven-day window and tans hacks into nasa to redirect the probe so that it doesn't impact the asteroid and now is he doing that to save the world from the fragments or is he doing it so that he can get in on his solution? Because there might be some ego involved. Right. And that's the beauty of the way his character is playing out at this point, because we really don't know. You know, we think we know. And then when we think about it, well, maybe that's not it. Yeah. But again, I feel like I'm hammering on you about this science fiction comment you made at the beginning. <laughs> Grace tells them sometimes the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Oh, and because I mentioned Leonard Nimoy, you're saying she's using a Spock quote? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And, and there's obviously truth to it as well. Yeah. Oh, no, that's there's no question. And I think that when you've got an episode that we just watched, obviously, we're talking about this after only four episodes have aired, but those four episodes are chock full of good stuff, including the hacking of the IO probe, like I just mentioned, but also... The reporter that I just mentioned, I don't want her to end up like Zoe on House of Cards, and yet she gets hit by a car, and it just runs off. So it's like, oh, God, this character, she was asking for trouble. But lots of great conspiracy elements, lots of great science fiction elements, lots of great hard science elements for those people who like that kind of stuff, too. And couldn't be happier that Craig Shapiro and Liz Kruger have this show to bring to us so that we can enjoy their writing once again. (laughs) All right. Well, this last segment of our podcast today, we couldn't be more excited to bring this to you. Our interview with Michelle Lavretta, which almost didn't happen, or at least not with Dave involved. I'm so glad Dave got to be part of this because Dave's uh, Michelle Lavretta fandom runs deep, not only with Killjoys and his enjoyment of that show, but Lost Girl as well, which is the beginning of your podcasting career. Yeah, absolutely. Along with Liberate. Exactly. So we were honored to speak with Michelle Lavretta, who not only created the fan favorite supernatural show Lost Girl, but now has brought us one of our favorite shows currently airing, Killjoys. Now, just to warn you, this segment does contain mild spoilers 
for the episodes that have aired prior to episode six of season three. But if you're not watching Killjoys, you really need to binge it right now because it just gets better and better with each season. So here's Michelle Lavretta talking to us with great enthusiasm about Killjoys season three. Well, we're here with Michelle Lavretta, executive producer and creator of Killjoys. Thanks for joining us today, Michelle. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's just jump right in, Michelle. Obviously, most of us know your work from Lost Girl, which for me, at the heart, it's just a search for identity, not only of Bo, but the other characters, both human and Faye as well. I mean, how did you pitch that show initially to showcase? And were there any Faye creatures you were disappointed never made it into the show? Well, uh, originally, the genesis of that series was the people I was partnered with, Prodigy, wanted to do something that was sort of a bold new look at sexuality that was kind to both genders and all persuasions, and, and I was super into going down that path. So uh, I came up with just about 12 different ways we could do it, 12 different concepts, and uh, we sort of bashed them around to think of which ones were the best. I never in a million years, for God, thought that they were going to say, yes, let's do the one with the succubus, and that's what happened. And so uh, one of the things I loved about that was, as you said, just you know, being able to sort of, as a, a folklore nerd, get into different types of say, um, or our versions of what we wanted to call say, that sort of took looks at all these different cultures. In terms of ones that we didn't get to do, God, there were so many. After I left, I'm sure they did some of them, but I'd have to think long and hard on, on um, any particular ones um, that I missed out on. Well, they also went down the mythology route, uh, obviously, and incorporated, you know, whether it was Norse, Greek, uh, Roman, which was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I was uh, with Emily Andrus in uh, the top of season three. We um, bashed around sort of some um, some arcs and what became Tamsin. And so that was sort of the first foray, I think, that we did into that mythology. And it was just really fun kind of getting back a little bit briefly into that world and, and remembering all the good stuff that we could do with those characters. I, I really love a, a story engine uh, at the heart of a series, but it's really only interesting if you can take a different poke at it with a new stick. And and that's really what that was, uh, what we were able to do in that series and analogous to what we're able to do with warrants on, on Killjoys. Well, and you mentioned Emily Anders because it must have been somewhat difficult to hand over the Lost Girl reigns, even though you were involved in seasons two and three of that show and, and later, but you're now, you know, partnered a little bit with her on Friday nights on sci-fi anyway, as <laughs> Winona Earp is, is alongside your show. But what is it about Killjoys that has kept you at the helm for all three seasons? Well, I mean, I, I, I admit I am somebody who likes to um, set up worlds and look for moments when I can kind of try to pull back a little bit, just because show running is really a beast. Honestly, it's, it is amazing. It is a privilege to be able to do it. It's something I don't ever want to fully give up from my career. But the longer I spend in the day-to-day -day meetings, the less time I have to be able to slay new dragons and come up with new worlds. So it's a balance, and every show is a little bit different. And in Killjoys, I'm very invested in what we're doing with the relationships in that world as well as what we're doing with the themes of it. So I feel like there's still a lot of stuff I want to poke at. Um, and then at some point, I, I think I probably will, you know, slowly dial back a little bit on that as well. It's just kind of my nature. Um, but I, I never want to fully leave. Okay. Well, everybody loves Dutch, Johnny and Davin. But for me, Delsea Kendry has 
I mean, I won't say she's come out of nowhere, but certainly from the periphery to become one of my favorite characters. So we know she's up to something with Anila. What can you tell us about Delcea? Okay, so I can tell you I freaking love her. Um, I, <laughs> I can tell you, I, I think part of what was fun about segueing from Lost Girl and the Killjoys is there are certain archetypes of characters that I still get to play with or of relationship dynamics. Obviously, I loved Bo and Kenzie and their platonic love. I'm able to inject that and continue investigating that in Killjoys with Johnny and Dutch. Well, I also loved the Morrigan, and I think that there's a bit of a parallel with Delcea. And what I love about those women is to me, they're very morally gray. I know a lot of people want to paint them as cut and dried villains, and I'm not able to fully see that. I think because I know their complete backstories, and it gives me enormous empathy for them. You are going to find out more about that character this season. I think she's going to do a lot of things that will surprise you. But what I think is most important about her is the ways that she helps us peel back the <laughs> the delicious onion layers, but that sounds gross. <laughs> um, the layers of Anila <laughs> sort of you know, get us into what that character is and, and what her story is. So I found that Delcea, aside from just being somebody I love to write, was a really useful tool for connecting the storyline of Dutch and Johnny to the storyline of Anila and the Holland. She is a conduit that allows us to keep both of those emotionally connected, and that's really of use to me. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned the Morgan. It's almost as if these characters – they want to be considered evil, but when push comes to shove, it's like, oh, grudgingly, it seems they're pointed to doing the right thing. I feel like there's um, there's a lot of sass <laughs> to, to them in the way that they, you know, have, have a bit of joy with the mayhem that they wreak. But I think particularly in Delcea's world, she was born into a certain role and she was raised much like Dutch was in a way that stepped upon her capacity for empathy. You know, Klein did that intentionally with Dutch because he wanted to prepare her for eventually possibly becoming Holland and surviving that transition in a way uh, that Anila wasn't capable of. But with Delcea, it was done because basically her ancestors and therefore her parents knew, hey, don't bond with these people. Think of them as lesser. Think of them as lower. Think of them as Westerlands because we're going to have to make good on this deal and sell them all down the river. And I think it really colored how she interacted with people and her inability to really bond. And I'm really interested in this season, the start of what we're doing with how being freed of all of that, being able to leave the quad and those strictures behind, oddly has humanized Elsea a little bit as we go through, even as she has lost her humanity by being Helen. It's a really odd but interesting dynamic uh, and character immersion, I think. Well, you speak of the Holland conspiracy there and and with the Nine especially, but there are certain storylines that seem to have the flavor of having been around since the very beginning, and then there are others that might have been added on during sessions in the writer's room, such as the hack mod story. Can you tell us if that is something that came up later, or have you had that in mind all along as well? Well, definitely things get added along the way, and because it's such an organic process, it's not something I'm always fully cognizant of in terms of, you know, when or from whom or what the timeline is. But uh, with the hack mods, interestingly enough, every season I try to go back to some of the, you know, clippings I've taken out or little art pieces that are touchstones of inspiration for me. And um, 
when I did that at the top of this season, I was reminded of actually what was the genesis of the hack mods for me, which was art of human technology hybrids that I've just sort of seen out in the world. And that was beginning of season one, probably before the series even started, just because I was, I knew that I wanted to poke into different cultures. And, and I think there's, if you're going to be on a sexy spaceship and you're going to be badasses out in space, you want to encounter different people, different cultures, and explore different tropes by using that. And one of the things that I was really interested in is just the futurism of where is technology going to take humanity in terms of the impacts on our culture, our prejudices, our human rights. And I'm really excited with what we've been able to sort of dip our toe into, but I'd, I'd like to go back. I think there's there's a lot more to be told to the, the hack mod struggle. Um, yeah, I, I want to touch just briefly on the world that you guys have been able to create because obviously sci-fi shows like Dark Matter, The Expanse, and Killjoys don't have these huge budgets on a week-to-week basis. But Hell every, you say. We have nothing but money. <laughs> every week you just amaze me. And I think, I mean, certainly the, the realism of, of the ships and things like that are really cool. But what's really hitting me now is the costuming, particularly – the officers on Anila's ship. And, and I mean, there have to be challenges associated with producing a show like this. Uh, are, are there any cool workarounds that, that you guys have done in the first three seasons you could talk about? How do you mean by workarounds? Budget workarounds, yeah. <laughs> Budget workarounds. Oh, oh, like our cheats. Like how did we get cheeky and kind of make a buck into 10? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is, I, I will own that, sir. I will own the shit out of that. That is something that... Is something that Honest to God, I swear, maybe it's just my familiarity now with the TV machine and how long I've been at it, but I find that shit fun. And and honestly, in my chair, if you don't, it will swallow you whole. There is a challenge to every TV show, and that challenge is always time and money. I don't care how much of each you have. You never have enough of both together. So for us, the challenge is laid out on the table every year. We know it. Every year you have to do more with less because the audience expects more. Um, but everybody's, you know, pay goes up slightly, our days go down slightly. It's just the continual dance. And I think that the best stuff that we've done to address that is either looking at it head on and having fun with it, which was kind of what prompted the genesis of this show for me. The idea of when I pitched or was talking about Lost Girl and when I was talking early development of Killjoys, in both cases, I said, listen, if you can't give me $1,000 million dollars, give me sexy and give me funny. And that, that is something that wasn't always an easy sell. You know, there were periods of time when you weren't allowed to do serialized storytelling in genre. It could only be anthologies or, you know, something quote unquote of the week. And they didn't want you to be too sexy. And God forbid you actually have a cheeky sense of humor because, you know, you should be full up nerd on it. And for me, I was, I don't know if I can swear. Can I swear? Oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, good, because I, I guess it's very hard for me to think and not swear. So, um, my, my philosophy has generally kind of been, fuck that. Like, uh, follow the fun. Follow the goddamn fun. That is the core of everything that I do. And, and for me, that is not contingent upon budget. It's, it's what I love about any season of Doctor Who. Every once in a while, I will get notes from, you know, an executive somewhere along the chain that they don't like the way something looked or a prop. And I'm like, goddamn it, if... My fellow genre fans are looking at the prop and not tuning in next week. A, they weren't genre fans, and B, they don't get the joy of that that I do, where it's kind of like a little chuck under the chin where you're like, look at that, they had two cents, and they, you know, they pulled off some fun, they pulled off uh, a romp. And, and I think you see a bit of that in every episode. But what I think 
beyond just those sort of thematic things that we've done is really concentrating on casting. I think that that is where we have done our best work. It is what I am most immensely grateful for and proud of is the people that we get and bring in every week to show you these fun little worlds. In the end, yes, the wardrobing is amazing. I think the sets, especially Anila's ship this year, are bonkers good. But none of that matters if you don't give a shit about the people wearing the clothes and walking the sets. And I think because of our amazing actors, you do. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> and in fact, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask has been on fans' mind because there's another show next to yours that also has great characters and great actors, and that's Dark Matter. And for some reason, Killjoys and Dark Matter get associated with each other a lot of times. And so people ask the inevitable question, how about a Dark Matter crossover? Is that something you'd like to do if the different universes could be reconciled somehow? I think it's something that, um, that I, I love Joe and, and we're usually emailing each other and um, we've certainly poked at the thought of it. I think that's really contingent upon us, first of all, getting a season for uh, renewal for both of us and bless the fans for everything they're doing. Our numbers are going up every week, which is really, really hard in a season three. So thank you. Keep that up. And then if we both get season fours, it then comes down to scheduling in terms of they often start before we do because we kind of talked about a little bit in season three or I had and uh and you really need to plan that out we only have 10 episodes and if you only have 10 episodes and you like a really big arc the way that I do it gets very hard to each week figure out how to have enough room for the amount of story I need to satisfyingly and yet slowly enough get to your finale in a way that people enjoy it, they understand it, and they don't break their neck at the speed. And it's, it's hard, and I don't always succeed. <laughs> but if we were able to sort of figure out enough in advance where in that arc we could have a credible crossover, I would totally be doing that, yeah. Um, you know, you touched on it briefly earlier in, in the interview, but one of the aspects of Killjoys that continues to impress me is the decision to leave romantic entanglements basically out of the equation. I mean, we had Johnny and Potter and Dutch and Dav slept together, but it's Johnny's relationship with Dutch that is the key dynamic, I think, in the show. It seems to acknowledge that, yes, a man and a woman can be friends. What about that decision? And, and are we going to get to see more of their backstory? Yes. Um, you will get to see Johnny and Dutch's backstory in episode seven, because here's, here's the thing. I don't like putting everything forward, especially as I say, when you only have 10 that every fan would want to see driven by myself as the, as the first and foremost fan in season one, that's too soon. You can't do all of those things. But as you start getting into season three onwards, you have the ability to sort of do these little gems where you're like, okay, that's something I've always wanted to fit in. How do we do it? So for me, platonic relationships are just amazing. They always, always have been. If I look back on the people, you know, that moment of death when you're like, who, who mattered to me? A lot of them, a lot of them are just deep platonic friendships with both genders. It's just right from childhood. Um, I've had female and male best friends and, and been really, really grateful for both. So those two are always going to stay platonic. The people around them, sometimes there will be romance. Potter happened just because they sparked. There was a, a season one. She was in a scene with John and it was the, after the rain, I think it was called. And I was like, Oh, there's a little something there. And then the same with pre and Garrett, the, their love story that you've seen the beginning of this season sparked because when pre stabbed Garrett in the hand last year, they just seemed to have a little chemistry. So 
if the actors bring something out, we'll follow it, but we don't create stuff around that. I'm, I'm more interested in seeing what happens to these characters organically than trying to force something to them. Although, you know, romance sometimes is something organic. Yes, indeed. And of course, there are other types of relationships as well. And so just want to ask one last question about the brotherly relationship between Johnny and Davin. I mean, you get to show things like sibling rivalry, but also loyalty and, and family dynamics. Are there any favorite moments of the relationship between Johnny and Davin that can only be done with family like that? I think my favorite moments that happen between John and Dav are really moments that happen between Luke and Aaron. Because I know everything on the page. I've approved it or I've polished it or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of where it's going. But when I get those dailies back, it usually comes down to expressions between those two guys. And the two that jump out to mind is <laughs> one of them was uh, last year when um, Luke said, my asshole's bigger than his asshole. Just the two, <laughs> the looks between the two brothers was fabulous. They nailed it. Um, and then there was another one that happened <laughs> this year with... Uh, Oh, God, what was it? I think it's John, John's line. I hope that's ripped for our pleasure in the middle of their torture. Um, <laughs> and then the two brotherly looks that they had with each other were like, yeah, yeah, that was a good line. You, you nailed it, bro. Like, there's, <laughs> there's stuff about them, and they spend so much time together, even offset, uh, the three of them, that they really do, I think, just naturally have those little family tells when you're watching it on camera. You see it in their performance. So th- those, are, those are kind of my favorite, just the surprises they bring. Well, that's for sure. And it definitely shows. Well, thank you very much, Michelle Loretta, for talking to us today about Killjoy Season 3. We wish you the best of luck, and we're definitely pushing the hashtag Renew Killjoys. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it, and, and thanks to all of our fans. All right, Dave. What a great interview. I think you mentioned to me that you felt like this maybe was one of the most enjoyable, most insightful interviews we've had on this podcast. Yeah, and it goes beyond my connection with Lost Girl and Killjoys, which is certainly important, but she was just so open, so excited to be talking about her art, the things that she's created in the show, and you know, it it was just a real pleasure to talk to her. Yeah, and she had some great insights to share, some great teases in there. I mean, talking about the fact that in Episode 7, we're going to get some backstory for Johnny and Dutch, for example, or the fact that there might be more of a uh, relationship between Pre and Garrett that we will get to enjoy seeing play comedically at the bar on Westerly. So lots of great things to look forward to. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and our interview. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in September, we're not sure what shows we're going to be discussing, but as we mentioned, we will continue our sci-fi royalty theme with the women. We'll keep you posted on social media, but in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know on social media what you'd like us to talk about. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. 
And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.